All right, here we go. Turn to Psalm 2, if you would. And while you're turning there, let me uh, give you a couple of introductory comments just about Psalm uh, chapter 2 that are very important to understanding what, uh, what the Holy Spirit is communicating to us through this passage. It is a companion psalm with Psalm 1. And Psalms 1 and 2 actually serve as the introduction to the book of Psalms. So if you're ever going to study the book of Psalms, it's critical that you have a, a firm understanding of Psalms 1 and 2 because the rest of the book of Psalms actually is an interplay between these two Psalms, either unpacking some aspect of what it means to be righteous or wicked or unpacking some aspect of what it means for God to be sovereign and king over all the nations and for the nations to rage against him. And so it sets the pattern and the tone for the whole of the Psalms. So with that being said, I do, uh, I will read Psalm 1 uh, for us. Uh, we, we don't have time to go into a bunch of comments, but it's critical. Uh, it actually is the answer to the question of why the nations rage. So the nations rage because God, in fact, imposes a righteous standard. So if you would hear the word of the Lord from Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the mere fact that God says, hey, there's a standard. I, I, I created you. There's a way in which things work best. Um, if we're honest, that angers us. We don't like being told what to do. We don't like being told that there's a standard that we are measured against, that we didn't get to decide on or vote on or think about. We don't like that. And yet, it is the way in which God does it. But the thing I think that we forget is it's not arbitrary. See, God's standard of righteousness for us, his people, is the way in which we flourish best. The way in which we actually thrive and are able to live in such a way that is true freedom. It is, it is not in any way uh, robbing us of our freedom to tell us not to kill our neighbor or to tell us not to lie to one another, which is destructive to relationship or to suggest that you ought to take a day in which the fallenness of this world doesn't dictate the whole of you. It's called the Sabbath. We, we rage against the Sabbath more than anything else in the world. In fact, David Hall and I talked about it. If, if you want to make your congregation the maddest, preach on the Sabbath and suggest that they might should do it. You'll get all kind of pushback about legalism and, and just all kind of craziness. And I've, as I've said before, don't take it off. It comes with its own curse. You don't get the benefit of it. Um, and so I'm not trying to impose anything on you, but it's, it's amazing how quickly and how angry we get when there's any sort of suggestion that there is a right way, that there's a way in which things are designed, that there's a way in which things work best, we, we kick against the goad. So this, this is actually why the nations are raging, because there has been a standard set that they didn't get to vote on. So we'll get to that in just a minute. But I have a question for you. Um, my question is, how much control do you feel like you have over your life? 
This is a great question, actually, for those of you who are like fourth, fifth grade on up, because this is really where you begin to struggle. In fact, it was hysterical. One day I came home from work. My daughter was about 12, and, uh, and she's, she's in her room, and Susan's like, I, I can't, I don't know what she's got going on, but she doesn't, she's not listening to me. She just says she needs to be set free, like she can carry on her life from here. Like she doesn't need our suggestions. She doesn't need our input. I'm like, cool. That, yeah, this is fixing to be real easy. So I go in her room, and I say, sweetheart, what, what's the problem? She's like, I, I, I know how to live my own life. And I know how to make my own decisions. And I know what's best for me. And I said, I'm not arguing with you. I think you're completely right. And in fact, there's a certain tyranny that I'm gonna, I need to let you out from under. If you're gonna be able to appreciate all of this freedom that you have, there's some things that you need to not have to deal with and be encumbered by. And she goes, okay, yeah, that sounds great. And I said, okay, all right, let's, let's begin. Um, do, do you pay the phone bill around here? No. Oh, well, then you, you don't want me deciding uh, what kind of phone we have and how much data we have and all of that kind of stuff. You don't want me making tyrannical decisions about what you can and can't do and when and you can't use it. So, yeah, let's, let's do that. You're out from under that. Uh, in fact, I'm such a gracious man, I'm going to give you one month. You get to use my phone for the rest of the month, but come February. Uh, bill comes due. If you can't pay, you're gone. I said, in that, that hot water, golly, you know, it's limited. Uh, I, I only pay for so much. I can only pay for so much electricity. So you, you need total freedom. And, and so you don't want that kind of tyranny in your life. You don't want that kind of stuff hanging over you. And so here's what we're going to do, because I, I, really, I, I don't want to brag, but I'm, I'm a nice guy. We got this little room. We used to have this little room in our house that was, uh, it had water and electricity, so don't, don't think I'm, I'm, I'm ugly, but it was like a little shed on the back side of the house. I said, look, I'm going to let you, you can move right down there. That way you can come and go as you please. You have an outer door. It's got water and electricity, better than what most people in the world have. And so, uh, and I'm so, I'm so nice. I'm going to let you live there for a month for free, but then rent comes due. And if you can't pay, I gotta, because of your freedom, I can't encumber upon your freedom. I got to throw you out. Uh, and so she starts crying. I'm like, sweetheart, what are you crying for? This is what you're asking me for. Because actually it's not what we're asking for, is it? We're not really asking for freedom. What we're asking for is permission. And see, what we want is all of the benefits that we have decided are actually genuinely good for us and none of the accountability. That's what we want. So it's actually inaccurate when most of you as children begin to demand, I want my freedom. I want to be able to decide. And so you, like the nations, rage and you plot in vain. Um, because uh, either the world will knock the edges off of you or the Lord will shape them into something beautiful. You submit to one or the other whether you like it or not. And so it'd be wise to submit to someone who loves you and to submit to something that actually knows how you're made and what is best for you, right? Because the reality is, as you get older, uh, older folks, older than 18, let's say 30 and up, how much control do you really feel like you have over your life? Like the older you get, the more you actually recognize the less control there is, right? Uh, whether that's medically, 
uh, or financially or any number of ways, there are forces at work that are far beyond us. And it's good news that we have a God who loves us, who is sovereign over all of those forces, because I don't know if you've paid close attention or not, but the forces are uninterested in your flourishing. Susan's reading an interesting book called Life at the Bottom by Theodore Dalrymple, which is not his real name. But the whole economics of poverty, nobody trying to fi- ain't nobody trying to fix it, actually. Because they, there's, a, there's, a, there's a caste system that works really, really well in this world, and it keeps the haves and the have-nots as far apart as it always has. And so most of the programs that we have are actually just intended to keep them right where they are lest they should rise and come up with their own ideas and demand things themselves, right? Not enough room for all these demands going around. So how much in control are we really? And how does that affect how you feel about these things? How does that affect your worship? How does that affect your discipleship? How does that affect your heart, the lack of control? And do you recognize that there is a God who loves you who is, in fact, in control? Um, And that doesn't answer every question that we may have. But again, if he's not there, we're in trouble. Um, And so, as we turn to Psalm 2, we recognize that it's the messianic answer uh, to why the nations rage. It's a royal psalm, it's a messianic psalm, and it is uh, also a missional psalm. And so if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3. Why do the nations rage? And the people plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. So you see that the declaration of Psalm 1, that there is a way in which you are are to live in order for you to be blessed and to flourish. And the kings of this world say, no, 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 that sounds too limited. I want to be able to have an unlimited supply and decide, and it's interesting that it's the kings and the rulers who are doing it, by the way. I want to be able to decide who gets blessed. I want to be able to decide how much they get blessed. I want to be able to decide who's blessed and who's not. You understand that's what the kings are raging. This is what they're plotting as they come together. And they try to throw off the bonds of this God. It's interesting when you study world history, how much of this plays out. You should be students of history. It's fascinating how you can uh, recognize the sovereignty of God, even in the hands of a pagan historiographer. And so they are upset because they want control. Does this sound familiar to you at all in your own heart? Does this not sound like you in your own heart, you wicked teenager, you who say, I just, I want to be able to decide what blessing is and what blessing is not and how much is mine. Give it to me now as if you were dead. Or us older folks who do the exact same thing, who say, no, 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 no. I want to decide what a disciple is. I want to decide what the bare minimum is that God has to accept I don't think he should be the one to have the holy uh, bar for this. I think he should accept whatever pitiful offering I'm willing to give because why exactly? 
What is it about your pitiful offering that's so great that he should accept it? Right? This is, this is us. This isn't just the kings and the rulers of the world. This is us trying to tell God what his standards ought be, trying to tell God what blessing is and what blessing is not. And just so you know, I'm not throwing stones. I'm rebellious to the stinking core. And this is the plank that's firmly in my own eye. Right? And there's a great danger because I've studied theology and I've, I've studied the original languages and I, I, I'm the pastor of a church. Right? I, can, I can play with the line a lot more if I'm not careful. And so it's hard sometimes when it hits me square in the gut and I'm having to try to deal with my own sin in the midst of it. How often do I decide? No, 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 no. I think that's, I think that's good. I think that's plenty, God. And so we rage and we plot in vain. And then what they're trying to do is throw off the, not only the Lord, but his anointed. And that anointed means, um, is, is essentially the Messiah, the king. So they don't want his ruler. Now, where do we see this in, in the Bible? Well, remember, even the nation of Israel does it. This isn't just about foreign nations. When it came time for a king, which by the way, a king was always part of it, you do understand. Like, it's not plan B. Uh, the, the Lion of Judah, the scepter that would not depart from him. God always intended to have a king that would rule. This is Psalm 2. The people said, nah, I don't know if we, wanna, we want the king you'd pick for us. And I just have a feeling he's going he, to be kind of a, a, a party killer. He's going he's gonna to try to hold us to righteous standards and stuff. I think we, we would like somebody a little more like And what's fascinating is what's the word that they use in Samuel? What kind of king do they want? What do they want him to be a little more like? The nations around them who worship Baal and sacrifice children, right? Now notice they didn't say, we want a a king that's a little more like you, God. No, 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 no. We want a king like the surrounding nations. And this is us over and over and over again is that we plot and we rage in vain and we are opposed to the things of heaven. Notice the language. It says the kings of the earth. That's going to be contrasted to the Lord who sits in heaven. And so it's a very earthly mindset. And so their, their vanity is to throw off the sovereignty of God and to usurp creation. It's interesting, I read an article on, get ready for it. It's not a term I'm coining, so don't blame me for it. An article on transhumanism. Have you heard of transhumanism? Well, you, you have, actually, because there's been several movies made about it, uh, one of which included Johnny Depp when it was about his sentience being uploaded into a computer, which, if you remember, it kind of ended poorly. Uh, I don't know if you saw it or not, but he goes crazy and tries to kill a bunch of people. And so they are spending literally billions of dollars in Silicon Valley um, investing in trying to transcend death. There's a cryogenics lab where you can have your head frozen, if you'd like, post-mortem, not pre. And uh, the idea is that someday they'll be able to upload your brain into a computer and you can live again. What they don't tell you is probably some teenager's going to hack into that thing and mess you all up and have you goofy, right? Uh, some guy living in his mom's basement. 
And so, so here, transhumanism is this race to overcome death. Now, what are they saying? They're saying that the resurrection that is offered to us in God, no, 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 that's not what we want. That is not what we want. We want control of the knobs. We want control of life after death. We want to decide as if they will be around to decide. So this is, this is well, this isn't something, that this Psalm 2 has not ceased to happen. We continue to rage in vain. It's fascinating when you read some of their ideology. It's very religious sounding. Um, there's an, I mean, Oxford University has had, uh, in England, has had them come and do an entire conference on transhumanism. Right? The, and we're, it's so odd to me that we would come up with something that's already kind of been come up with and is better, but we want control. And they are spending, like I said, literally billions of dollars in this effort to transcend death. I don't know about you. I, like I said, I, I don't want to be uploaded to some computer somewhere and kind of float around in the zeros and ones and have some kid come along and tweak it. I, it just doesn't sound great to me. I don't want to wind up like stuck in some Wii game as getting beat up by, I don't know, like 12-year-olds or whatever. Um, and so um, it, it's just it's a fascinating, though. This, this is human nature. But, but it's so important, I do not want you to only think about the nations and some government official you don't like or some of that kind of stuff. You need to examine your own heart. You need to examine how you in your own heart long for control and how you play that out both passively and aggressively week in and week out. And so this portion of the psalm actually gets quoted in Acts chapter 4. And it's the story of when um, Peter and them have been told by the local religious governance that they cannot preach the gospel anymore. And they were going to kill him, but a guy named Gamaliel steps in and says, well, if it's not of God, it'll just go away. We don't need to kill him right now. Uh, you can kill him at any point. So interestingly, they just beat the stew out of him and throw him out. And what do they do is they get together and they begin to pray and they actually quote Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage in vain? Why do they plot in vain? And guess what happened? As they, as they leaned upon and believed in and grabbed hold of the sovereignty of God, it said the place was shook with the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were emboldened to go back out and preach the gospel because they knew that God is sovereign over history. It doesn't matter what the nations say. It doesn't matter what the, that, that particular local governance tells them that they can't preach the gospel. No, they were going to continue to preach the gospel. And they even told him, they said, should we listen to man or do what God tells us to do? But it was this psalm that they quote as the place was shook by the spirit that Christ poured out upon them. And so in the same way, this is something that we should know. As you look at things, I'm sure you guys heard about the, think if you lived in Hawaii and you got on your phone that false missile alert that took them like 38 minutes to reconcile probably the longest 38 minutes of anybody's life in Hawaii. Um, and so uh, just think about how as you look at the world, I mean, China has been excoriating their military for loving peace too much. So what happens when the red dragon rises and decides to get colonial 
even more militaristically around the world. They're already in many places in Africa and the Middle East, and it said we, that they may have to invade some places in order to protect their assets. You do know that Russia thinks it's on the ascendancy as well. New Cold War is kind of, kind of rumbling, and the North Korea thing, and, and on and on and on it goes, right? So if you were to let those things uh, affect you and, and, and rattle you, you would live in fear of the wrong thing, which is man, instead of recognizing that God is sovereign over all things. And that the reason these nations are raging is because they hate the righteous requirement. They hate that there's any standard at all. Listen to what John Fesco, who was a professor of mine at RTS, He's listed there as J.V. Fesco in the more official way. He says, Jesus' righteousness reveals the wickedness of those in the world. And when he does so, they naturally respond with hatred. In this sense, the contrast between the righteous man and the wicked, the two ways becomes the messianic conflict of Psalm 2. What I find so fascinating is, is so often when people make a decision that they're going to do something that they know goes against righteousness, they do not come talk to me. And they don't, they don't come talk to somebody that they know is, is wise or older or may in any way, shape, or form challenge the ridiculous notion or idea that they've come up with. I find that fascinating. Like if you were about to make a life-changing decision, why in the world would you not do everything you could to get the best wisdom you could get your hands on? I may not be the best wisdom you can get your hands on, so don't hear me say that. But, but why would you not want to at least be challenged before you make a, a mistake or a decision that's going to radically transform the whole of the rest of your life? And why would you not recognize that that in and of itself ought to flag you into thinking, I may not actually be in control here. There may be a force or something that's moving me in a direction that I better not go. And so, I want to ask you, what are, what are some ways that you're, you rage against the sovereignty of God and you're seeking to get out from under his sovereign hand? You're, you're trying to throw off the way in which he's designed things. You just want to go your own way because you're just tired of hearing all this stuff. I mean, why would the God who created the universe who suggests that things are actually good for you, why would, you, why would that bother you? Just one, for instance, uh, as many know, uh, within the realm of uh, the, the abortion world, uh, when a woman has an abortion, the likelihood that she's going to struggle with the psychological impact of having had that abortion is, is it's inarguable. And that is not a religious statement. That's science. The first person that any woman sleeps with, she is yoked to not just psychologically, not just spiritually, but actually biochemically. You may want to choose wisely. For the male, it is not dissimilar. His brain is rewired in certain ways by the things that he looks at and the things that he engages in. This is neuroscience, not Bible per se. But the God who designed all those things has been saying the same thing for years. And we don't want to hear it. But if somebody comes up with something on Reddit who's an atheist and it gets published in Time magazine, suddenly we'll listen for about 37 seconds.
Ah, the end of the Arctic chill. Man, I am hot natured and I am freezing to death up. I'm just telling y'all. I'm about to take the microphone and kind of move around a whole lot more. We're almost done. Hang in there. Um, and so, so you, need to, you, you need to think, think before you make your decisions. You've got plenty of time to ruin your life. You do. So ruin it wisely, right? Get some advice. You, you still can do, you're going to do what you want to do anyway, but at least have heard a good argument against what it is that you're thinking to do. And it should flag you. Like I said, if you don't want to, I don't want to, I know what Cameron's going to say. No, actually you don't. Ask my wife. You really don't know what I'm going to say. And sometimes I just change it up for fun. Uh, so you don't want to miss that. Really, you don't. Uh, and so, so stop thinking you're sovereign. Stop with your arrogance and humility. Recognize that you are predisposed. Oh, no. Uh, uh, Satan has returned. Uh, turns out hell's colder than we thought. Um, uh, so anyway, uh, <clears throat> but what's so good about God is that, is this the whole of the psalm? Is this where the psalm ends? No. Despite the raging of the nations, despite their plotting in vain, he's going to come after them, not purely for judgment, but first for redemption. And then judgment only if they will have nothing of his redemption. So let us turn back to the text and hear the rest of the psalm. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned. O rulers of the earth, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. There's some language here that you may not like. You, the idea that God would laugh mockingly. Let me ask you, who made the first mocking move? The nations did. They mocked him first and got together and said, we're going to throw off his bonds. That just shows you how ridiculous and laughable it all is. God doesn't laugh in some sort of condescending way that says, I don't love you. No, remember what he does. That king that he sets on his holy hill in Zion is going to die for those nations who rage against him. He's going to die for those rebels who plot in vain. He's going to die for all of those who throw off his bonds. So lest you think that this is some sort of condescending or, or odd sort of Discussion, no, it's making the point for our benefit to see how ridiculous it is to plot against the Lord our God. To, to plot in vain, to try to throw off his sovereignty. Praise be to God. 
that the raging of the nations is not the end of the story, that that is not where he leaves it, that he doesn't just turn his back and say, I don't need you anyway. No, instead, what he does is he says, no, I'm going to set my, my son, my king, who is the Psalm 1 righteous man, on my holy hill, and he will, according to my law, according to the way I have designed things, redeem for me sons and daughters. And what he goes on to say when he says, you are my son, I've begotten you, the New Testament picks up on that. Acts chapter 13, uh, you actually see it in his baptism and at the transfiguration, the language shows up. But in Acts chapter 13, it's very clear that it's actually a reference to his resurrection. Because remember, what are the wages of sin? What did Christ do on the cross? He died, and in order for him to be not guilty, what did he have to do? He had to rise from the dead. That is the moment at which Christ, in essence, has earned the nations. And I know this language is kind of odd to us, but he proves that he is the perfect son, that he is, in fact, the heir. Through his suffering, he learned his obedience and gains the crown that was promised to him. And so he becomes our king through his resurrection because he applies that to us. We have newness of life. And notice that in his kingship, it's not about judgment first. Now that will come. You will either bow your knee to him as savior or judge. As as, uh, Philippians 2 tells us, every knee will bow. And for those of you who, who... are paying any attention to the, the, uh, uh, this guide. I horribly misspelled the word bow, uh, and uh, we, we noticed way too late. And again, remember, as a wicked perfectionist, this is God's webs saying, you are not sovereign. Uh, you can't even spell the word bow. Um, so it keeps us in our place, me and mine. And so here, here we see that this, this Christ who comes as king, it's, it's a warning first. And he says... Seek refuge in him. It's the way I have created it. And I so love you that though you rage, though you plot in vain, though you try to throw my bonds off, I'm going to come for you. Not to destroy you, but to love you and redeem you and to resurrect you and to make you as you were intended to be made. And this is God's missional heart to redeem his people. And so what we see is that the first and most important aspect of any discussion of mission is that God's missional heart is to redeem. It is to restore. It is to be united with his people. And then the second thing that we must understand on any discussion of mission is that it has been, past tense, accomplished in Christ. And yet it is being worked out in time because that is where we are. We are not in eternity yet. And so we get the beautiful opportunity to see um, opportunities like we got to see today of what the Lord is doing in Masamara in Kenya. And again, you guys, you guys heard that there were going to be 16 people baptized, which means that 16 people did what? What's that? Became believers. Uh, you didn't even flinch, most of you. I have my back to you, so I can't say for sure. Maybe you were just freezing to death. Who knows? But what should we do when we hear that 16 people came? Thank you. 
Uh, and that should help warm you up just a little bit, just to get moving. Uh, but, but we should be excited about that. And, and, that, and that that's something that we, though we're not in direct, we didn't get to see it. We did, we did participate in a way of, as we pray for them, that's participating. As we have given to them, that's participating. And so know that the Lord loves the nations. And Christ's work is finished. And Travis and Laura are not over there trying to win anything. They're just trying to receive what's already been won. And what a gift that gives us to be able to do things that are missional instead of feeling like the total weight of it is on us. No, the weight of it fell fully on the king, the king who sits in Zion, God's holy hill, um, and who is, who is resurrected, and he is the beloved son of our God. We should submit relationally to him, kiss him, um, unless that leaves us with only one other option, which is anger and perishing. And that is God's justice on the other side. And so blessed truly are we who take refuge in him. So if you would hear what Dale Ralph Davis says about this passage, he says, Psalm 2 says that you must know where history is going. Not only is God sovereign over history, you gotta know where it's going. Um, and he says, you must see the whole show. You must understand that the world has been promised to the Messiah. So if he's the king to whom the world has been promised and you serve another king, what would you expect? How would you expect him to deal with you? Me just being ultimately just and fair. If you say, no, I don't like your kingship. I, I, I don't like your redemption. I don't like your rules and your flourishing and your blessing. I don't like any of that. Okay. All right. Well, uh, since you can't conquer him, that means you must be conquered one way or the other. And so best that you know him as Savior because God does love us and God is good. He is not a tyrannical Lord who robs us, robs us of all that is good. And so it's worthy of us uh, if we've also thought about how we struggle with control. We also ought to think about some ways in which we've been blessed by the fact that we have taken refuge in the Savior. So often, I think we as Christians don't spend enough time celebrating the goodness of God and the good things that he does and thinking about how those things um, actually matter to us. Um, as one who has taken refuge in Christ, I could go on and on all day about the blessings that the Lord has given and continues to give, uh, and I feel so undeserving of. Um, and yet the Lord... Uh, who has drawn me near to him, did not say, ultimately, as I said to my daughter, you're out, which I didn't. She, she lived with us until she was like 17, and she left of her own cognizance, recognizance, um, and discovered then, too, that it wasn't better out there, as you will find if you try to come out from under the hand of the Lord. So what do we learn from Psalm 2? One, God's sovereign over all of history. Two, God will fulfill his redemptive mission through his chosen king. Jesus Christ. So as we talk about mission over the next five weeks, remember that. The mission has been accomplished. The question is, how will you join in celebrating the accomplished mission and participating in seeing that displayed in full? That's the question. Listen to what Donald Williams says. He says, Psalm 2 is evangelistic. It's addressed to the nations. It beats with a missionary heart. 
It is the nations who are in revolt against Christ. It is the nations, however, who are promised to him. And it is the nations who are called to him. Psalm 2 directs the nations to the Son, warns them of judgment to come, and promises them blessing if they will worship him. So please hear the right tone of Psalm 2. It is to warn those who choose the way of the wicked, you will perish. For those who try to throw off the bonds of God, no matter how many of you gather together to try to do it, you're not going to win. It's not going to work. It's been tried throughout history. Um, And God loves us so much that he bears with us even though we rage and plot and try to throw off. So please hear that the coming of the king is to redeem and, and, and to restore, not to destroy, but to make all things new. Amen? I'm going to pray for us. We have one more song. Uh, any of you who are struggling with any of these things, if you would love to talk with us or pray with us, we'll be happy. We'll stick around to do that. Um, and uh, then we'll receive the benediction from Revelation 7 before we do that. So let's pray. Father, thank you that there's a king who is on your hill, that there's a king who has power enough not to be usurped and overthrown over and over and over and over again, that we have confidence that even as the book of Hebrews chapter two admits, even though it doesn't look like it right now, God, Christ does in fact reign. And that gives us great confidence as we, um, if we were to get tangled up in the headlines or we were to get tangled up in any of the things that come our way that we feel so out of control on, that we rage against, that we try to plot to try to find some measure of control and yet you have forgiven us, Lord. Thank you that you pursued rebels like us and that you continue to pursue rebels like us who rage and plot and try to throw off. Um, God, thank you that there is a king who is loving and just, who is holy as well as loving, who is able to actually accomplish the conquering of death, which none of us can or ever will be able to do in our own strength. We give you thanks for this in Christ's name. Amen.